Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're recording here on Thursday, December 8th, 2022. We are in the final weeks of the year. Uh, we are continuing to recap the year that was here, hitting on some key issues, but also looking ahead to 2023 and beyond in New York politics and policy. If you've been listening at all to the show in recent weeks, you've heard uh, at least one, if not more, really good conversations breaking down the results of the 2022 elections, obviously an immense election cycle in New York and a lot still to chew on. We'll do a little bit more of that today, but we're really starting to uh, look back after focusing so much on federal and state elections and therefore policy at the state and federal levels. We're getting back into city government and city policy a bit more as we look ahead to 2023 and recap 2022. So my guest today is Donovan Richards, who has been Queensboro president since the end of 2020. A Democrat, Donovan Richards is a former city council member from Southeast Queens. He won an unscheduled election in 2020 for the seat after it was vacated by Melinda Katz when she became Queens district attorney. Donovan Richards then won the regularly scheduled Democratic primary in June 2021 to all but secure his first full term in the position of Queensboro president and officially won that term in the fall general election last year. So he's now finishing up a couple of years in the position, the first year of his new four year term. We have a lot to discuss with the Queensboro president here today. We won't get to all of it, but just a sample of items on my list here where his thoughts and his opinions and his proposals and the ways that he's going to work with other elected officials and others are very important, include the future of housing and economic development and transit projects in Queens, the use of open and public space for things like open streets and outdoor dining, the question of the Queens way or the Queens link, which continues to be debated about an abandoned rail line in Queens, uh, the casino licensing process that's unfolding, the also unfolding rollout of legal marijuana retail sales, the role and makeup of Queens community boards where the borough president gets to appoint the members, and much more. My conversation with Queens borough president Donovan Richards in just one moment. First, very quickly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find any or all of them after you listen to this one. I've had some really interesting conversations with a, a great series of guests in recent weeks and months. I mentioned we've been breaking down the results of the 2022 elections here. I've had a series of experts on, including some Democratic political consultants of different stripes, Republican City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli, who is very involved in boosting Lee Zeldin's gubernatorial campaign, uh, Assemblymember Ron Kim of Queens, talking about the shift of Asian voters away from Democrats towards Republicans, how to win those voters back, what that trend means, and more. So this discussion with uh, Donovan Richards here, the Queensboro president, is our second straight Queens episode. And guess what? Next up after this one is actually Queens City Council member Shaker Krishnan, who is the chair of the City Council's Parks Committee. So look out for that upcoming show as well. I just booked Council member Krishnan to come on the show 
Uh, I wasn't planning this Queen series, but it works it, and it's fitting since I grew up in Queens. So I'm happy uh, to talk a lot of Queens with Assemblymember Kim, Queensboro President Richards, and Councilmember Krishnan. So find past and future episodes of Max Politics wherever you get your podcast or the Gotham Gazette site. And of course, at the Gotham Gazette website, you also can find all of our original reporting on a variety of city and state policy and political matters, as well as our guest opinion page and much more. So check us out at GothamGazette.com. All right, Queensboro President Donovan Richards. Hello, thank you for being here. How are you? Great, Ben. Great to see you. Good to see you too. Good to talk with you. Before we get into a whole bunch of other stuff that I mentioned, just briefly on the elections that just occurred, you are not on the ballot. I'm sure you're thankful about that uh, after a, a couple of elections in a short amount of time, as I just mentioned. But um, Queens uh, obviously got a bit redder in this election, a bit you know more Republican uh, in terms of, of the outcome of the vote in the gubernatorial race and in some local state legislative races. I mentioned Assemblymember Kim. He narrowly won his reelection against his Republican opponent in a Assembly district where Governor Hochul, the Democratic nominee, of course, and who was victorious, actually lost in that assembly district to Lee Zeldin. And that happened in some other places as well in the city. Uh, Just broad strokes. What's your assessment of what happened in the in the governor's race and some of the legislative races, especially in Queens? Are there reasons that you would point to, um, you know, that you think Republicans did a a bit more uh, successfully than than some might have thought in parts of Queens uh, than in the past? Well, let me start off by saying I'm so grateful to not have had an election, <laughs> four and a half elections in 19 months, pretty much, uh, or just about 19 months. And I'm happy to now be able to just focus in on a job. And, you know, when you look at the election now, let's let's look at the facts. Hochul did win Queens by about 26 percentage points. But what I would add is you look back to my race and um last two races I had primaries and generals, and you sort of would have seen that the borough president's race was a precursor to uh, what we saw in the governor's race, because the maps uh, almost are identical. And when you look at race, when you look at Southern Queens and you separate that out to portions of Northern Queens and Western Queens, you're going to see a lot of similarities in in where people voted. And I, I would say there were three things that I think um, have caused sort of the electoral map in, in Fort Queens to see uh, go more red. Public safety, you know, Zelding hitting on that message. I, I can't tell you how um, some communities and pockets of Queens do feel under siege, even if it's just perception, right? Because you look at some of the NYPD data and you won't necessarily see a correlation or, or large increase in crime, although we are obviously having challenges around uh, grand larcenies, larcenies. Um, and then you look at hate crimes, you look at the combination of that, and then you look at, you know, de Blasio's proposals around specialized tests, right? And how the Democratic Party sort of um, was all put into this one box, right? And I think as you look at Asian voters, when you look at some of the white voters, white ethnic voters, because we just have to be clear, you know, those two issues definitely aided a Zeldin um, race. And we just have a lot of work to make sure we're getting the message out. Now, I did win um, parts of Flushing when I ran, you know, (laughs) surprisingly, 
but it was a lot of relationship building. And I think uh, Governor Hochul did not have enough time to do that. And neither did I technically in my short period of time and having to run four and a half times. So I think as people get to know her and hear her, I think that will make some progress. But there are, you know, there are some challenges around crime, without a doubt. You look at the 109 precinct, people are feeling um, crime and seeing it more than they than they used to, right, in certain pockets of the borough. For Southern Queens, we're down in a lot of areas, surprisingly. Far Rockaway, the 101 precinct, is down just about in every categorical area. So for communities that have encountered this, you know, you will see the governor won those areas. And, and it's been a lot of work to sort of decrease and to stay on pace and decrease in crime in those areas. So there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done once again. Um, but I will say that fear-mongering, the perceptions around crime, in the reality around crime, because you can't discount seeing Michelle go punch in, uh, push in front of a train. If you've encountered a hate crime, you can't discount that because, you know, people are absolutely feeling it on the ground or hearing about it. So we have work to do. Are there ways in which um, Democrats, uh, any any office holders, um, but but Democrats, especially controlling so much of the power in the state and the city, need to look at some of those concerns from certain communities and rethink certain policies? Is there anything you're taking away now from this multi-year trend? Again, the, the swings are not huge. I mean, in, in, in some smaller electoral districts, they might be pretty big. But overall, you know, the swings are not huge, but they're but they're significant. Right. And are there ways that that there's policy that should be rethought? Is Are there ways that it's more about um communicating? Is it making clear, uh, you know, to certain communities that their concerns are being heard and taken into account? How much of it is sort of adjusting policy and how much of it is is paying more attention to people, talking to them more and explaining more of the policies that are in place, the funding that is coming, things like that? What do you, what do you think, you know, in terms of any gaps that are between the policy versus the sort of messaging? I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, I think we have to do a better job at messaging and it is about communication and not just showing up when it's election time. Right. And I think that, you know, the Democratic Party has a lot of work to do to get back into church basements. Remember, we used to have meetings in the church basement. We need to get back to that strategy. Right. Meeting people where they're at. You know, just yesterday I held a meeting, for instance, with the JCRC. Um, Human Rights Commission, the Office to Prevent Hate Crimes with Jewish Leaders ahead of the holiday. Not that anything happened, but just being proactive in this space. Once a month, we hold public safety meetings with North, South, East, and Western Queens. Over 100 civic leaders on the line talking to both uh, Queens North, Queens South. We don't broadcast it. It's not a big public um, uh, calendar that we put out on it. But Letting people know that we hear their concerns is critical. And you'll find it doesn't matter what the political ideology is, right? Whether you're Democrat, Republican, because we have a little bit of everyone in Queens, as you know. But yeah, when you get on that line, voters. you hear such similarities between every corner of the borough around the challenges, around whether it's petty crime, whether it's homicides, whether it's shootings. And I think we need to do more of that as a party to break out of this slump we found ourselves in in New York State, because we can't argue that we lost more congressional seats than any anywhere else in the country. Um, and that work needs to be done again. And I think another good example is, yes, 
funding. You 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 have to get back to the basics. You know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. I don't <laughs> call anybody stupid, but that's something my coach would preach to us on the mm-hmm. basketball court. Everything doesn't have to be a crossover. Sometimes it's just a simple dribble <laughs> and a layup, right? Uh-huh. Um, we don't have to get all cute, but we can be gritty a little bit. But but the point is, is we have to get back to meeting people where they are and being consistent in the messaging. And also, yes, announcing initiatives, the funding that we're giving, which we're never shy about to local communities to know that we are investing in, in them and that we do care. Uh, just one one more since you uh, on this, uh, as you're as you're talking about leading into sort of the government, the policy, you, you've been someone in your career. Um, you know, I think of you, I think of Jamani Williams, I think of some others, leaders of color um, who have been very outspoken about the need for police reform, about, uh, you know, eliminating racial bias in policing, but also about the important role of policing, but done well, and sort of really trying to balance the push for both of those things. Um, And so I'm wondering, coming out of this time as borough president, these meetings that you're having consistently, the crime increases that we've seen over the last uh, couple of years, obviously some things coming back down this year, murder shootings down significantly across the city, uh, and then obviously it gets localized as you're talking about. But but having all these meetings, being a borough-wide official now uh, for a couple of years, um, are, there, are there a couple of concrete things in policing policy in any direction that you're sort of pushing for or in community-based interventions that you're trying to push people to understand need, you know, more attention? Are there a couple specific things you point to, whether it's how the NYPD is is being run, deployed, et cetera, or other, you know, efforts to reduce crime, but also ensure fair, you know, criminal justice? What are a couple of things that you're most focused on that you're hearing from people you're thinking about, you're pushing the mayor, the PD on, et cetera? What, What are a couple of specific things that are really top of mind for you here? Well, let me start with saying that I, I've never been shy about uh, pushing in NYPD, certainly in my prior capacity as public safety chair. I had a lot of experience in that area, and we, we sort of utilize that expertise um, walking into this office. And now with the, obviously a larger lens coming from the city council now carrying an entire borough. And one good example of, of what we've done, just from an investment point, Um, You look at how we're building out the 116th precinct in Southeast Queens in Rosedale in my neighborhood, a neighborhood that is sorely underpoliced, partially because um, the precinct, the 105th precinct, which encompasses Southern Queens and Northern Queens, covers over 400 lane miles. It's impossible to build out a real relationship with the NYPD when they're just coming down technically to issue summonses to arrest folks. It used to be to harass them over marijuana <laughs> because the 105th led the city in summonses and arrest there, which led to the, 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 the push for legalization, obviously. Um, but that 116th precinct is going to be one of those models, right? We envision it being a model because you'll have, yes, you'll have the, the basic precinct that you're used to, but now you have the community center baked into it, right? A nonprofit in there. And then you'll have open space that the community can use to do programming. So we we want to see more of those models uh, across policing. But absolutely, there are other things that um, the city can certainly focus on. The NCO program, for instance, I felt was before the pandemic was moving in the right direction. And one of the reasons I like the NCO program is because 
you and that's the neighborhood coordinating offices, you would get a lot of folks out from communities who weren't necessarily a part of the regular civic infrastructure in communities, right? The same actors, I want to say, um, same people who show up to every meeting. And I really thought that those meetings were effective. And I attended a billion of them across the borough, especially in my capacity as public safety chair. Um, you would hear the police got to hear from neighbors. They got to hear on the quality life stuff. Just dialogue that we don't often have outside of when some major incident happens. So I thought that that was something we needed to return to. And, you know, one of the things I'm pushing and, and, and having a conversation with the police commissioner on is even through that program, you get a lot of officers who go into NCO program and they're gone in a year. So by the time they build out that true community policing model, they're gone and you, you've lost the trust of the community. So we think, and not that we want to stymie people from um, being promoted, but we think people should at least have a, a limit or, or a, a limited amount of time for them to, to be there. Then you have to wrap uh, services around a lot of this, right? Like policing, police cannot resolve every issue. So you definitely need those community solutions. Of course, I would like to see the cure violence movement beefed up more, more funding going into pockets of the borough who don't have it because you'll see Southern Queens has cure violence. But Northern Queens doesn't, where actually we're seeing the largest increase in crime in the borough. So I want to see programs like that expanded. Um, and then, you know, obviously we're looking at city council policy. Of course, I think there's still a conversation warranted around the gang database around. Um, and I know Councilmember Caban is working on that and others. So, you know, yes, there's a warranted conversation around that. And the mayor's announcement on mental health, in which I did a lot of pre-work on going back to my time working with Susan Herman. But there's still a lot of work um, on his policy that needs to be done as well, but we're investing heavily in mental health in the, in the borough as well. Okay. So speaking of the borough and investments, um, uh, let's, let's zoom out even more. You gave a state of the borough speech in early June. You announced a partnership with the governor called Queens Forward that you said will include a lot of capital investment in Queens, uh, all sorts of, of investments. So we're several months later now. What's the status of Queens Forward? What can you tell people to expect in terms of uh, state investment in Queens through that program? What's what's happening with that? So let me start with uh, first the city. And we've done really well uh, come working with the mayor. We've secured over $130 million in capital funding in our first 19 months. Uh, a lot of that going into a heavy emphasis on healthcare, parks. Education, you know, we put 22 million there. Cultural centers, we're building out the first children's museum in Queens. Um, so we, but we've largely focused a lot of our capital, affordable housing, in areas that have historically been disinvested. In. And, you know, we partner very closely with the city council as well on a lot of these projects as well. So, you know, I'm just leaving, for instance, Council Member One uh, in Woodside, where we were looking at a park that was sorely disinvested in. Uh, she put up uh, some capital. We put up 1.5 million working with her as well on that project so that we can get a fully funded park. So we we want to continue to do that moving into the, the near future. And then Queens Forward, we're working with the governor and we're, we're going to have some exciting news um, as she goes through the particular proposals that we um, put, out, put, put, to, put out to her office. And I, I would anticipate some great news as we're having conversations even up until now on what the new year will look like as we put those invest uh, as we uh, announce those investments. So I am excited about where we're headed there. 
And we, as you know, we have a very strong partnership with both the governor and the mayor. And we believe Queens is going to continue to uh, be the leader uh, to continue to be the borough with the most excitement and innovation to move into the <laughs> So in terms of those investments, we're, we're sort of waiting for the governor to, to lay out her Queens forward vision in her. No, her... we've laid it out. I mean, pretty oh, much. Okay. It's like, right, right. So it's not just us pie in the sky waiting for the governor. I mean, we've had proposals that we were interested in her taking a look at. And, you know, we'll have we're having some back and forth on those things. And, and I anticipate you'll hear a lot more of that in the uh, next coming months. OK. Can you give us one or two items on your wish list there? What? what uh, I mean, I don't want to give it away yet, but, you know, <laughs> I, I talked about things that were critical and we often talk about building back or going back to normal, right? In, in the city and in the state and in Queens, where we saw the most deaths, where we saw COVID um, really hitting some of the pockets of Queens hardest than in anywhere else. You know, those investments in healthcare are critical. Uh, you know, we're looking at housing sites like Creedmoor. Are, are important, right? You know, you have over a hundred acres sitting there that have been largely undeveloped and moving into the new year, you'll hear a lot more discussion around uh, perhaps uh, a proposal for that site. Um, so we're working through a lot of, of different things. Um, but I will tell you, if you know Donovan Richards, you know you, he gave about a hundred <laughs> items and we'll see okay. We'll see what, what we get. But I do wanna stress the importance of investments in healthcare in the expansion because Queens has lost more hospital beds than any other um, borough, and we want to make sure we're investing in healthcare as we move into the future. So, so for people to understand the gist there, that's sort of their, an agreement with the governor for a lot of investment in Queens. You've presented a lot of ideas. Her, she and her team are reviewing them. We're going to see her agenda early in 2023, obviously, her executive budget, her state of the state coming up very soon in early January, and, and we might get a lot more intel then in terms of which projects are moving forward and what the creativity and such and and the menu that you presented her and the the selections that the state is making for investment is that the way to think about it yes and uh, you know my running thing queens get the money all right um one other thing that stuck out in your in your there were there are many things but one other thing that stuck out in your uh state of the borough speech um i remember at the time was talking about uh, expanding the open street model all over the borough. There's obviously been the very successful 34th Avenue open street in Jackson Heights that you know lots of people utilize and rave about. And, and that's seen as, as a model by some, not everybody, but by a lot of folks about that. And I believe earlier this week, you... Um, you got a... You had a... Uh, the Queensboro cabinet held a meeting with a presentation from the city department of transportation. I know I got an advisory that that was happening. I'm not sure if it did happen, but um, that the department of transportation was coming to Queens to talk about the open streets program. So how is that presentation? What's going to happen in 2023 on, on open streets in Queens? Well, I'm happy that Queens continues to be the model of, of what we need to do, especially moving out of this pandemic when people rediscover their neighborhoods. I mean, if you had a seven year old like me, I know you have a, a little one, too. Uh, you know, you, you had to get some fresh air, but not, oh, yeah. you know, but the beauty of my neighborhood is that I do have parks and there. But there are a lot of parts of Queens that don't have parks or open uh, or limited open space like uh, parts of Jackson Heights. So uh, and, and other pockets of the borough as well. 
So open streets really do give an opportunity for us to reclaim those streets and to open up and for neighbors to get to know each other and to, you know, be creative in what we're doing. And so the Department of Transportation did uh, come uh, this past Monday to present. I will see uh, Commissioner Idanis Rodriguez uh, next week uh, to talk more about this. But I do anticipate we're going to see a lot more activity when it comes to open streets. And, you know, one of the things we wanted to do is make sure that we talk through some of the challenges, but legitimate challenges we've heard around sanitation, around ensuring um, that if there are any quality of life issues, that there's a central place people can go. And also you have to remember the 34th Avenue open street is largely volunteer left. And I was yeah. happy to hear from DOT that they're going to have this $7 million pot, which is going to enable community-based organizations and, and perhaps their agency to ramp up and we'll be watching closely so that we can um, professionalize the program more and not um, leave it to be such a volunteer-led thing. And we want volunteers. Don't, I don't want to lose the essence of the program, but we want to make sure things like if we need to move a barricade, there's somebody there. So um, we look forward to working through with them. And, and also the equity piece was important for me as well. And you know, we did see more, although 34th Avenue was the most talked about, Astoria is the most talked about, 31st Avenue. We did get some in Southeast Queens this year. We're working on the notorious Coliseum block right now, 165 um, in Southeast Queens, which is actually probably was the first unofficial open street in the city, quite frankly. Um, but even there have been some safety issues there because cars are parking there. That's going to be locked up soon. Uh, they won't be able to, to get onto that open street as well. So there are, are, are a lot of things we're going to continue to focus on with DOT. But number one is expanding this program out to every corner of the borough and looking at it from an equity lens. Okay. So more to come on on that. Uh, and they just opened the application up. We were the first borough they held um, their meeting in on, on the proposed program for um, the new year already. So uh, we look okay. forward to continuing to work with them. And, and what you'll hear also, Ben, is there are a lot of communities that want it, which is great. And we just want to make sure that they will have the support that they need as we move forward. All right. So uh, there's this uh, uh, abandoned uh, three and a half mile uh, commuter rail line in Queens. <laughs> um, been talked about for many, many years. It's been out of commission since the 60s. Um, uh, there basically have been two competing visions for the future. Queens Way. Uh, and Queens Link, one of them uh, basically a Highline style uh, linear park, and the other one uh, some park space, but reactivating it as transit as well. Um, in September, the mayor announced thirty-five million dollars to make a stretch of it um, into a into a park. Um, you were there; you were celebrating that investment, but you were also calling on the state to move ahead with assessing the possibility of the transit aspect to it. So uh, a couple of months later here, where's that at? What's your what's your message to other leaders who would help to help make this happen? The mayor, the governor, the MTA. What what what's your what's your vision there? What are we going to see, you know, in terms of the future of that uh, abandoned and, and uh, out of date uh, commuter rail line there? Well, let me start by saying I'm very appreciative of the mayor's support and in investing $35 million. And, you know, Forest Hills and, part, and parts of many parts of, um, of the communities who abut that particular train station do need open space. So, you know, I like to start with that because, yes, we need more open space in Queens, but we also know that transportation is a great equalizer as well. 
And being someone who grew up in the Rockaways, I know that it could take an hour and a half, two hours on some days to get to Manhattan by train. I could get to uh, get to Florida by plane quicker than I could get to Manhattan by train on some days. Um, so the need for investments in, uh, in transportation infrastructure is just as critical. And I think we can do both. I mean, this is not rocket science. We're not the only place in the world who's who would have a similar proposal and be able to build a train and do a park under it. Uh, we are talking to the governor's office and the MTA. Uh, I talked about Queens Forward. You know, those one of those things, just a snippet that I slipped in there to the governor as well to to have MTA push up to explore. And before I went to that announcement, you know, I was very clear with the mayor that I wanted to also see the study done as well. So we we look forward and, to and the new year. Yeah. And he has said that he's not, you know, this is not ruling out that possibility, right. you know, this initial. But let's be very clear here. It, it feels like getting the state, getting the MTA to move on this in any sort of fashion that has, uh, you know, a, a real foreseeable action plan on this. It feels, it just feels unlikely at this point. No, I don't think but, so. I think no? you look at look at all the support for the study. I mean, from myself, Congressman mm-hmm. Meeks, down to every elected official, some Democrats, some Republicans, some, <laughs> some who mm-hmm. are, we don't know what they are, but the, but the point is, is everybody's on one page on this. So it's very, it's a rarity okay. that you will have just about every elected official sign onto a letter saying we should do a study. And I, I, I feel confident that the governor will listen. And, and I think we've gotten that commitment from the MTA that they're going to move forward. Uh, uh, Jana Lieber also had said that as well uh, in uh, about a month ago. So we it's just a matter of time before we see the study. Even with the investments in the uh, Queens way, it's going to take time. Design is starting. So we do want to see the MTA um, beef up and get, 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 on, get on their job and get this train moving on the study right now. All right. All right. Um, let's talk about housing and development and growth. Um, you, uh, negotiate, you were part of the negotiations, very central player in the negotiations over this big innovation Queens proposal, uh, that now has passed the city council after some very tense negotiations, massive project. Um, I, let's not relitigate that. Let's talk about moving forward. How, um, you know, you are uh, an unabashed proponent that Queens needs to grow, that there needs to be more housing to accommodate population growth, that, um, you know, it needs to be responsible development, but that it really needs to happen. Um, What's the larger vision as borough president now for that? Are you thinking about ways in which you can push, um, you know, push the conversation forward in communities to talk about neighborhood plans to talk about upzonings? Are there ways that you're thinking about sort of with a borough-wide scope really moving this conversation so it's not all of these pitched battles over singular plots, you know, even if they are very big, like Innovation Queens, most of the time they're not quite as big, but there's these big battles over private development, as you well know from your time in the city council as, as zoning subcommittee chair, um, but and also as a council member. How are you thinking about that moving forward? And, and is there anything we might see from you in your office to, to move that agenda ahead? Well, let me say this, that, you know, you have to remember most borough presidents have played a ceremonial role in, in a lot of these conversations. And, and I think this is one of the ways um, we radically changed the way that our office is viewed in land use. I think Innovation Queens was a prime example of that, 
of how engaged we're going to be. And although Innovation Queens was one of those projects highlighted, this is not the first time we negotiated and got a developer to deep affordability. We worked with Lynn Shulman, got less press, you know, but we voted down a project in Forest Hills to get them to uh, MIH option one, for instance, right? Even after they said they couldn't do it. So we, we have these battles in the background all the time. And, you know, it's hard to, 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 to pull a sheet over my eyes because I, I, I was the zoning chair and I, I, I'm very knowledgeable on housing policy. I can look at numbers. I can tell you even on innovation, Queens, the developers swapping down, they couldn't get to the, to the minimum 40% that we wanted and they got to 45% on it. And, you know, the role we're, we're playing and we are having active conversations with the city. And, and I, the other thing I want to put into perspective is that there's not a whole lot of city land left, right? So even as you talk about development, you have to remember majority of, of, of sites that are going to be developed across the city are, are private sites. Um, in a perfect world, this Department of City Planning would beef up and they would focus on doing neighborhood rezonings. And we could have these conversations all in one time rather than having these piecemeal conversations lot by lot. Um, you know, there are some, some areas of interest to me. We still have the Plaxo site in Long Island City. We still have Sunnyside Yards. Parts of Jamaica were rezoned, but we have Supton Boulevard, um, which is very reminiscent of sort of what Willits Point looked like. Um, maybe a little better, but still needs a, a lot of work. So along Liberty Avenue, you know, those are neighborhoods we're interested in looking at um, doing some more large scale um, development on as well. So we're not waiting for city planning to come in and, 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 and talk to us. You know, we are actively planning these projects mm -hmm. and having conversations with EDC and the Department of City Planning and HPD. And let me also say this, it's not simply that we don't have development that's already been approved. It's really about the financing as well as we talk about deeper affordability. So, you know, one of my jobs has been to get the city to invest in a uh, subsidy in Queens, because before I got here, only 13 percent of the city's budget was being invested in affordable housing period in Queens. And if you look at the map, you know, people like to always um, say Donovan is big real estate. But look at the Rockaways, 10,000 units of affordable housing approved out there. I think I'm ranked number six, seven, according to the New York Housing Conference during my time in the council. Um, um, and all of that is pretty much 100% affordable housing. We just need to continue the conversation around H, uh, HPDs subsidizing projects later on, but I'm proud of what we've accomplished thus far in my first 19 months as borough president, and there's, there's still a lot more work to be done. So we are looking at things comprehensively. Eventually, we will have a conversation and pull together some sort of task force where I want community boards and, and stakeholders to identify areas in their community that can perhaps grow. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the sites I, I mentioned earlier, Creedmoor is going to be one of those sites that we definitely want to see developed. It's state owned uh, and we have a lot of opportunities there as well moving mm -hmm. into the new year. Are there areas of Queens that were down zoned in the past that need to be revisited? Are there areas of Queens that um, that when the mayor talked on the campaign trail, you know, about wealthier areas of the city needing to do more to, you know, uh, accept affordable housing as part of as part of, you know, community development and citywide development. Um, 
are there are there areas like that that are on your radar that you would say I want to have conversation with leaders of particular neighborhoods, particular communities to say, listen, our city's growing and, you know, everybody's got to sort of do their part. Are there, are there neighborhoods? Are there uh, city council districts? So, you know, are there any sort of geographic areas that you're looking at most closely for growth? Because, you know, there's obviously parts of Queens that have transit options that are not that at quite as densely populated as other areas. Well, I would say Eastern Queens is of, of great interest to me, although there's not a lot of transportation options. And I talked about that Creedmoor site that the last five borough presidents have tried to get something done on and they couldn't get anything done on. And I'm happy to say that we're moving along um, with ESD, uh, Empire State Development on. And you'll hear a lot more about this in January. Um, but I wanted a real robust community engagement process as we moved into this, right? One of the reasons this thing failed in the past is because it felt like the city and the state were coming in and just shoving it down the community's throat. But we've been clear about showing leadership and uh, and we're going to lead uh, a task force of stakeholders moving into the new years, including the elected officials of that area. Um, you know, Western Queens is growing immensely. I mean, that's why Innovation Queens was so important, mm-hmm. uh, because you see those pressures in the community. I think they uh, that CB1 and 2 perhaps only had built out less than 400 units of affordable housing. So when you hear uh, the council member's passion around affordability, she's totally not wrong. Council member one and the electeds up there. But the problem is that you had a lot of low skill development that was able to skirt MIH because you're doing co-ops and condos and you're really not really building um, with uh, with major density in mind. So mm-hmm. we want to see areas like Astoria do their fair share. It's always the same areas that do the affordable housing, right? It's Jamaica. I'll be out there tomorrow cutting the ribbon on another project <laughs> far Rockaway. It's always black and brown neighborhoods. Every neighborhood needs to do its fair share when it comes to affordable housing. And with that comes policy changes that the city needs to make. What made Innovation Queens unique is that it's one of the few times, the only time we've seen the city come in and subsidize a project in Astoria. Mm-hmm. People missed that piece, missed that piece. That was something we fought hard for because we said to, to the mayor, we can't keep just subsidizing Far Rockaway. Other communities deserve some of the subsidy as well. We can argue how much, we can argue that it costs more to build in certain pockets of the borough, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that they should not have their fair share of affordable housing as well, and that the residents of those neighborhoods don't need it as well. So that was a big policy change that I think people missed. That's something we did not see in Long Island City historically. You just had MIH options two and three being used, not even one in many cases. And uh, and that's why uh, the pressures of the affordability crisis are being felt up there. That's interesting. That's the the mandatory inclusionary housing uh, program that, of course, uh, you helped uh, design and and pass through the city council several years back. And let me gotta, say this: when we did MIH, MIH was never supposed to be the ceiling. It was only supposed to be the floor. Absolutely. You know, and and yeah. that was the understanding we had, even as I pushed for the deeper affordability option in in, in option one. But uh, the yeah. city has to follow through on the policy that we agreed on. Um, I got to let you go in two minutes here, but uh, let me sneak in two last quick questions. One, Queens uh, is clearly on the list for one, if not two of the three downstate casino licenses that are going to be um, given out at some point here. What do you want to see there? Do you want one to two 
potential full-scale casinos in Queens? Are you a little wary about any or more than one? How are you thinking about uh, what you want for the the larger picture of Queens in terms of those casino licenses? Hell no, I want it all. <laughs> I mean, this is job. So you'll take, about. I'll take yeah, it all. You'll um, take, yeah, shift shifting the existing Queens Casino to full scale and then opening up potentially a new one. Absolutely. If, if, and if, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. you look at Willett's Point, uh, you look at the possibilities of improving transportation up there. You know, I, I've envisioned a tra- uh, ferry running up there as well uh, towards City Field. Uh, in LaGuardia, I mean, there's 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 limitless opportunities there um, for us to really grow the economy here. And Resorts World has been a, a a good neighbor. I mean, they've contributed a lot to education, billions of dollars. They've been a good neighbor in in Southern Queens for sure. And and Steve Cohen has also been a good neighbor. I mean, he mm-hmm. at the height of this pandemic has contributed $18 million to, in, in, in grants to help in small businesses. He's just been a good neighbor since he, he's gotten here. So I think it would be a home run, uh, perhaps to have two. But the jobs, what's happening at Willits, transportation improvements, I mean, I, I, I will take it all coming out of okay. this pandemic. <laughs> okay. But let me end in just saying this on the yeah. casino. One of the things we've been clear about is right across the train tracks is neighborhoods like Corona have been hit hard during this pandemic. And we want to make sure that even as Willits is developed, even with the possibility of the casino, that we're also focusing in on a lot of the community benefits that need to also be a part of this plan. Uh, very, very interesting. And we'll, we'll revisit that. Let me sneak in one more quick one here. The, the, uh, I, I might not have the details on this right, but there was, um, you know, coming out of Ida, uh, deadly hurricane flooding, there was, um, you know, programs and investments announced about, um, you know, protecting basement apartments and questions around storm resiliency. And then it seemed like there was a very halting pilot program or something along those lines. What's the status of sort of those efforts in getting the city and state to to invest in those flood mitigation efforts and, you know, uh, protecting people who live in basement apartments and, you know, that type of activity is there. Uh, anything happening on that front? Well, I'll continue to call for the uh, the legalization of basement apartments. Um, and of course, with that, and I obviously worked on the East New York pilot, uh, being the chair of zoning when we right. rezoned East New York. And the de Blasio administration nearly never really supported it and ramped it up to a scale that I thought we can really accomplish getting those basements in East New York up to, to code. Uh, but I want to see this certainly expanded across the state and city. People are living in these basement apartments, partly because of the affordability crisis. I'm a basement baby myself. You know, I was born a teenage parent. So we moved around a little bit everywhere. Buildings, basements, I've I've lived in it all. Mm -hmm. So we definitely want to see that happen. But uh, good news is, you know, uh, we're getting some federal dollars. You know, we've worked very closely with the Congresswoman Grace Ming, who just secured another $120 million towards. You'll remember going back to my time in the council being the environmental protection chair. So we're continuing to build out the uh, over $2 billion infrastructure plan in Southern Queens. But what we saw uniquely in Ida is that a lot of the areas that flooded were areas that were never <laughs> flooded before, unfortunately. Right. Um, so, you know, it's been, we've been largely focused on working with the Army Corps and Solutions, the state, the city, because it's really going to take both. But the bottom line is that some of these areas are going to need buyouts. 
Peck Avenue and Flushing, you're not, I don't care how much infrastructure you you build there, it won't be enough to 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 handle uh, the, the rate of water that that they're in and uh, rate of water that's coming into that community and impacting basements, right? Like they're below grade level, mm-hmm. ground level, and we, it would mean entertaining buyouts. So I think that's something I, I want to continue to discuss moving into the new year with the governor. We did some of that mm-hmm. in Rockaway, by the way, after mm-hmm. Hurricane Sandy, um, and it worked. You know, we were able to take uh, some of those homes, move them further inland, right? Move families further inland. And then right now we're in the process of working towards um, preserving and, 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 and we changed the zoning to disallow development in those areas. And we want to build out parks, which are green infrastructure features. So Very I think that's some of the things we need to explore moving into the new year. But it, then it's all about investment, <laughs> investment, investment. Very and interesting. See more money. All right. We got to a lot. We didn't get to we didn't get to everything I wanted to get to, but we got to a heck of a lot. Uh, Queensboro President Donovan Richards, thank you for the time. We'll catch up with you more in the new year. Uh, Happy holidays. Be well. Thank you, Ben. Be safe. (laughs) 